So R2, what is R2? I think R2D2 when I see that, but like, <laughs> clearly that's not what it is. I think R2D2 when I see it too. So yeah, like R2 is our, our actual like store. It's like coming after S3, basic. Amazon has S3, we have R2. Get it, they subtracted one from each. <laughs> yeah, did you just like, is R before S in the alphabet? Like <laughs> QRS, yeah, for sure. I think there's gotta be something there. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also like, it's, they call it like radically reprogrammable or something like that. Don't you want to make it better? Like you're less than Amazon, but don't you want to be like T4? If you're going to be better than S3? Uh, maybe. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software. And our friends at Raygun are here to help once again. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Here's how it works. Set thresholds for your alerts based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment, along with custom filters that give you even greater control. You can assign multiple users to make sure the right team members are notified with links directly to the issue in Raygun. This takes you to the root cause so much faster. Never miss another mission critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customers peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. They have usage-based plans that start at four bucks a month with unlimited apps and users. Again, that's raygun.com and start your free 14-day trial. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Join in on the hijinks at jsparty.fm slash community. It's totally free. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at jspartyfm. Without further ado, it's party time, y'all. JS Party listeners, we are back this week with a very, very exciting guest, um, hot topic as well. So, you know, hold on to your butts, everyone. So we're going to be talking to John Cooperman, who's a developer advocate at Cloudflare. And John is here to tell us all about every week in December or maybe every week in the fall. I felt like Cloudflare was releasing a major new feature. So anyways, we're going to learn all about that. And with me today, um, co-hosting is Jared. Hello, Jared. Hello, Amel. Happy to be here with you and to have John here with us. Pretty exciting. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. So, John, it was really hard for me to not call you John Cupertino because, like, John Cooperman, the word Cupertino has, like, always been stuck in my head every time I think about your last name for some weird reason. I like it. It sounds fancy. Yeah. I might just start going by that. Yeah. <laughs> Except I already have the short Twitter handle, so I can't I can't give up the KUP. That's true. You can't go longer on the Twitter handle. Yeah. So, Mr. Cupertino, can you just <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, for those folks who might not know you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I have been in engineering for a long time. I worked at a company called Barracuda Networks doing security stuff, worked at Twitter on trust and safety, and then on twitter.com, worked on the Brave browser back when there were like seven or eight of us or something like that on it, and then was at Adobe for four years working on a bunch of cool creative cloud stuff. And then I'd always wanted to try developer relations, like I'd always done conferences and meetups and stuff. So this is my first developer relations job now here at Cloudflare. And then I also run uh, JSConf Hawaii, which is an awesome, postponed for the last few years, but an awesome uh, in-person JavaScript conference. Do you live in Hawaii? I don't. About half of our organizing group does, but it's a really fun conference. As soon as the uh, conferences happen again, you all should uh, check it out. Come to the next one. 
Are you kidding me? I I am so there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, JS Party should do a whole thing. We could do a whole thing. JS Party Hawaii. I think so. Yeah. I mean, JS Party was basically invented to be at JS Conf Hawaii, right? Like, let's be honest. Yes. Totally. We've just been failing for years. <laughs> there was a JS Party, I think, at JS Conf Hawaii. JS Conf Columbia. Oh, okay. So K-Ball went to Columbia. Okay. I don't think we've gone to Hawaii, though. Is Kevin Ball, is that your thing, or is that a different podcast? Kevin Ball is our thing. That's He's our thing. He's our thing. <laughs> yeah, he, was, he showed up the first year. He was awesome, and he was like, hey, can I do a JS Party episode? And we're like, heck yeah. And so we just set him up on stage with a bunch of speakers. Oh, he did go to Hawaii. I was probably, I don't know four years ago or something like that. Wow. So long ago, I don't even remember it. Yeah. And he was just like, I want to do this thing. And we're like, heck yeah, let's do it. So yeah, we put him up on the stage, a bunch of people who volunteered and we had an episode, like an impromptu episode back then. That is so cool. So he loves to travel and we had, uh, we do a new year's show once a year where we set resolutions and uh, 2019 going into 2020, his resolution was to make a JS party episode on all I think he said six continents because Antarctica, pretty tough. That's awesome. Well, then the pandemic hit and he went no places. It was a total fail. But yeah, he's been traveling around and wants to travel more here to different conferences all around the world. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Well, no, yeah, K-Ball. I, it's so funny. I always call him K-Ball. So I, I forget that his first name's Kevin. <laughs> but no, I, I, he'll be really happy to, 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 to hear that we volunteered him to go to Hawaii. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah. But anyway, so JS Party and JS Comp aside, we're here to talk about Cloudflare and for for anyone that's, you know, in web development, I'm sure folks, a lot of folks have noticed just kind of like Cloudflare has just kind of, I don't know, it's, I feel like it's had a huge coming out party. Like it's everywhere, you know, in all the places. And can you just tell us um, for folks who maybe not familiar with Cloudflare, like what is Cloudflare? Yeah, I guess I think of it often as an internet company. I know it's like really generic, like super generic, but I feel like, so they started off in the CDN and security space. That was like their kind of big things was like providing like security solutions, DDoS prevention, helping people host their content on a cloud network, all of this kind of stuff. And then it's not even that much of a pivot. I think just like getting more and more of the internet's traffic, they started noticing all these amazing things that they can do with that. And so they've now spun into also like a serverless company, a video and a stream company, like basically all these common things that happen on the internet, trying to use their massive network to make the better experiences with those things. So I feel internet is like the word that always comes to mind when I'm asked kind of like big picture what Cloudflare does, like we're an internet company. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I love that that's the branding that you've taken. And so for me, I was exposed to the scale of Cloudflare for the first time when I was at NPM and I realized like, oh, wow, actually, like the massive scale of NPM is pretty much major, like the majority of that is actually fronted by Cloudflare, right? Because all the cached reads for every single install, yep. you know, coming from Cloudflare caches. And many folks don't know that, but like really we're very grateful to Cloudflare in how it's actually helped the JavaScript community support the, you know, NPM and Node as it was scaling, right? And really, like, I, I have to wonder, like, if it wasn't for Cloudflare's generosity, I don't even know what we would, I don't even know what the internet would look like, because we had like a ridiculous discount with Cloudflare. I don't even know if you were even charging us like even a fraction of what you should have been charging us, you know? So thank you, Cloudflare, for supporting the JavaScript community as it was growing and scaling and figuring itself out. But I love this kind of remarketing as like a web security and performance company. So can you tell us a little bit about like this shift towards being not just a CDN company, but like so much more? Was it just kind of like a natural thing for Cloudflare? It's funny because I have, I'm like sort of new I have my opinions and I've been meaning for like ever to get some meeting time with some people like a lot higher up to check this thing. But the way that I view it is I've been like really liking this analogy of like we used to be a passive company, right? Where we all of our services were these passive services that you added on, you configured, they were kind of set it and forget it. So like the CDN security stuff, the JS CAPTCHA to prevent bots, things like that. Mm -hmm. And we have sort of transitioned over the years into still maintaining those like world-class services, but offering a lot more active solutions. So for example, like we have a serverless platform called Cloudflare Workers. We have the video platform, like Cloudflare Stream. We have Cloudflare Access to kind of like do a smart VPN. So we have all these things that are not set it and forget. We're like moving into this application space where like application developers are using us to actually build stuff to store files, to stream videos, to 
build these massive applications. So that's kind of like how I see the transition. But again, like the CDN and the DDoS and all of that is like v- vital, right? It's not like we've transitioned into a serverless. Like those are new arms to the company. But mm-hmm. I still feel like my, my favorite things are like our execs will always post little tweets about like, oh, there's a giant DDoS attack. Nobody even got paged. Like, you know, you can see this graph of like all this traffic and we just handled it like autonomously and it just went back down and stuff like that. So I'm still fascinated by those core products. I mean, that is so pretty, like freaking cool. I was just trying not to curse live on air. So I had to- I saw it. I had to correct myself. <laughs> had to catch my tongue, right? Well played, well played. So that's fascinating. And I love your analogy of like, set it and forget it, like going from set it to, and forget it to like more active application management, because you're absolutely right. When I think of like how I've dealt with my, my CDN providers and even like to some degree Cloudflare at NPM, right? Because there was, we use workers and we'll get into that in a second, but it was very much like a set it and forget it thing because like it just worked, right? You can figure it, you, you set up all your routing, you set up all your mappings and you're good to go. And so now moving more into kind of the land of AWS, right? But it's almost like a lot better than AWS in many ways, because there's a lot more focus towards, I think, the needs of web development. And I would say very JavaScript heavy applications, right? And so I think that's the kind of interesting value prop. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about like, how is Cloudflare more supportive to JavaScript developers than AWS? Because I, I, for me, it's very clear that like Cloudflare is geared towards modern web applications, specifically like front-end heavy ones. Yeah, it's so interesting because I feel like you sort of make these decisions early on in a company's life. And I know really smart leadership folks will be able to see like the five, 10 years down the line. But for people like me, it's often a surprise that where we end up or whatever. So I think that like just to get into some of the architectural decisions, when you look at like Fastly, Cloudflare, AWS, you know, these big players in like the serverless space is that Cloudflare, unlike the other two, like we don't have these VMs. Like if you kind of boil it down to this like base concept, you look at Amazon, you have this virtual machine, it spins up when a request comes in, you have this idea of like a cold start where it was off and needs to turn on versus a warm start where it's already on, it's a lot faster. All this incredible technology. I'm like a gigantic AWS fan. I think that like the, what they built is just incredible. But so we went with this different approach, which is that we run V8 in our data centers, like Chrome V8, uh, the JavaScript engine. So V8 has this concept of isolates. So V8 can have tons of these different isolates, which are you know little security sandboxed instances, but they aren't VMs that turn off and on. So like the V8 VM is always on. And so basically, you have some of these trade-offs here that go pretty deep. But one very cool thing about us is in order to be super, super fast, we went with this architecture that it's always on. So as soon as you hit a worker, it's just it runs like a lot of times within like 20 or 30 milliseconds, the response time, like very quickly. And one of the effects of that choice is that we natively support JavaScript and WASM, which is what V8 supports, right? Because we're just running V8 at the edge. And so all of a sudden we have this platform that is very familiar, very comfortable for anybody doing these like Node or JavaScript apps. They literally just point it at uh, Cloudflare. We use the same like module format or like event listener format, all these browser and like APIs like that V8 supports, we support. And so I think that my speculation is it was originally done just for speed and performance, but maybe they had the vision from the beginning, but the outcome has been this extremely familiar ecosystem for everybody doing Node or JavaScript or WASM with Rust, stuff like that just feels really good, really natural. For me, what's like really cool is there's also some other innovation, which if we can't share this, we can edit this out, but I'm pretty sure we can share this regarding like timing attacks, right? So in order to kind of prevent timing attacks, because you have a folks leveraging some of the same resources at times, like, you know, there's certain things you can't use if you're using Cloudflare infrastructure, like set timeout or yes. like there's certain built-ins in JavaScript, for example, that you can't use. Can you maybe share some of that? Yeah, there's quite a lot. So like one thing that's interesting for us, things get really a little bit muddied, right? So like we're V8 and so people will often try to take this big, gigantic Node.js application that they have stick it on Cloudflare workers and then are surprised when it doesn't run. That's like a really common thing that I run into feedback of. So we are using V8. We're not Node. We're not guaranteeing that any Node API. So we have a lot of stuff turned off, stuff related to security, stuff related to like memory and CPU performance, stuff related to like you said, like these timing attacks, like quite a lot of stuff is turned. So basically what we've done is kind of put V8 at the edge, 
trimmed down everything that could be a problem and now are at the stage where we're actively engaging with the community being like, what are we missing? Like, what do you need? And maybe we can't turn it back on, but maybe we can provide some standards compliant way of getting that functionality back for you. And so like, for example, uh, James Snell, who's like a node core contributor, he's come on board to start filling in a lot of these APIs that we turned the whole thing off, you know, because we knew there were some problems with, but maybe we can actually safely support 90, 95% of it. So that's like actively where we're at right now is we have a lot of stuff turned off, trying to engage with the community, trying to see what kind of apps people are building, trying to see what we could turn back on or what we could polyfill at the very least. That's like definitely like top of mind for us right now. What kind of cold start times can you get out of V8 when you trim it down like that? I assume that's a priority for you all is like how fast can this sucker? Yeah, it's they're really fast. Like I think that the numbers are tough because of latency and because we have pops all over the world and things like that. But I think that a lot of people are like able to see like full runs of their worker returning data in under 50, often under 30 milliseconds. At a certain point, there's like a little bit of diminishing returns on speed, right? Because it's like if it's not. But what I love about our speed is it's fast enough that you can do dynamic stuff as fast as people are used to seeing static stuff. So I built a lot of these apps, like we have this cool thing called HTML Rewriter, which is an API that runs in workers that can do all of this cool manipulation of HTML and stuff like that. And then we have like data stores like KV and durable objects. So you could literally like pull a static page and like decorate it with like a like counter, a view counter or comments or anything that you could imagine about as fast as people are used to seeing a static website, you know, still 30, 50 milliseconds. And it could have all sorts of dynamic information on it, which is really fun for me, like a lot of fun to play with. Yeah, I think 50 milliseconds is the threshold of which the human eye doesn't notice. Like it, to us, it's instantaneous. So as long as you don't have additional bandwidth latency or whatever, at least execution time, you can't ask for much better than 30 to 50 milliseconds. Yeah, and that's 50 milliseconds is what people are seeing on the client, right? That's not us starting up and running. That's like what people are actually getting back uh, their data from. So that's round trip time for the request. Yeah. That's spectacular. Yeah. And we even have, I think it's on our workers.cloudflare.com. You can like scroll down a little bit. So you have to go to workers.cloudflare.com and you can start clicking this like test again button under high performance global network. And you see what the real latency of going out, hitting a worker and returning with the data is. And it's like often under 50 for that whole round trip. Yeah, no, that's great. So we're going to get into workers and some of these specifics in our next segment. But to kind of close this out for now, we've been skirting around this edge computing, we've been throwing the word around, can we just take a minute and define that for folks? Yes. What is edge computing? Why is it important? Why is it a game changer? And like, more specifically, like, what is this V8 on the edge thing? Like, what does that even mean? Yes. Right? Like, why would you ever even want to do that? Right? So... Educate us. Yeah. Oh, educate us, Mr. Cupertino. Cupertino here. Cards <laughs> on the table. I sort of hate this term now. Like, have you ever kind of fallen in love with something because you needed to be like, hey, we're different. And then like a few years later, you're like, oh, I just wish this would go away a little bit. You mean like Web3? <laughs> like all the buzzwords around Yeah, like that. something like that. That didn't take three, a couple of years, though. That didn't take so long. Yeah. So edge computer. So if you think back in like original AWS days, and now they have like Lambda at Edge, so they do edge computing too. But the idea being like you would originally when serverless came out and just, okay, from the top down, like you used to have to have your own app and then you would like call or go online, you'd rent a server You'd install like Linux on the cert, like all this stuff that you had to do, right? And all you want is your API to exist. So serverless was like this revolution where basically the revolution was like, stop worrying about a lot of stuff. Like you don't have to worry about operating system. You don't have to worry about hardware. You don't have to worry about bandwidth. If it goes up, we just charge you more. Awesome revolution, right? So that's when people talk about serverless, they mean like deploying a single function and you don't have to worry about upgrading Ubuntu. You don't have to worry about like, you know, anything like that. The one thing that it left out, in my opinion, was location. That still felt odd. So you'd have this amazing, magical serverless thing, but you still have to pick what data center you wanted it in. Be like, I'll put it in Seattle. I'll put it in, you know, wherever. And so the idea of the edge computing was that Cloudflare is the CDN, hundreds of data centers around the world, and that every function you deploy, you don't even get to choose where it goes. It goes to all of them, right? So it spreads out to all of them. And then when your users hit it, it gets load balanced to the closest one or the most efficient one for them, right? So you can imagine your code running on hundreds of data centers and your users just accessing the one closest to them. And so the edge meant, like if we're looking at our CDN, what we call each individual point of presence is like an edge network, right? Like that's like the closest thing to the user. So the actual code is running at the edge as opposed to before 
if you had like a Lambda in Seattle and then you use Cloudflare to cache your responses, that cache would be at the edge, but the actual code when there was a cache miss would have to go all the way back to Seattle, right? So that's kind of like edge computing. The reason I hate it is because it's like, at what point does it become edge? Like if you have like two data centers with a load balancer, is that edge computing? And you go to the closer, you know, is 10 edge, is 20 edge? So I think it's a little bit tricky and there are diminishing returns, but edge meaning that your function is deployed somewhat all around the globe and your users will hit the data center closest to them automatically. Yeah, I think it's overloaded as well because many companies use edge to refer to like IoT devices and stuff. Yes. And so like if we're looking at a global network, like that's even more leafy, that's even more edgy. But if you're talking about a CDN, now your points of presence around the world, those are the edges. So it's just kind of right. Absolutely. The domain matters and it is an overloaded term. So I think the thing is, is that when you use Cloudflare, you don't choose where it lives. It lives everywhere that we have to offer and your users, you can just rest assured knowing that they'll hit the closest one. Jared again. Have you heard about our membership program? It's called Changelog++ and it is the best way to directly support our work on JS Party. As a thanks for joining, we give you an ad-free feed, discounts on merch, and even some bonuses like extended episodes. Check it out today at changelog.com slash plus plus. We'd love to have you with us. So John, that was a really great introduction into what is Cloudflare, how the company has grown, and how the company's, I think, reshifting its focus to better support modern web development, which is very exciting. And I think it'd be really great to kind of clarify something for our listeners before we get into some of the um, nitty gritty nuts and bolts of the new features. Can we maybe clarify that like, Cloudflare isn't a second tier cloud, right? Like you're not like building, like it's not like Vercel where like you're building on top of us. Yeah. Like you guys have your own data centers and stuff, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. We don't build on top of Google cloud or AWS or that. Yeah. It's our own data centers, our own points of presence, our own, and we manage all of that stuff. Yep. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point of clarification. And Vercel's built on Cloudflare? Yeah, both the CDN and their new serverless stuff cool. is on Cloudflare uh, Workers, which is awesome. That's quite the endorsement also. <laughs> so congrats. Right. They're awesome. They're a great team. They're such a cool company. Yeah, I mean, I think whether folks realize it or not, like if you write JavaScript, you are already using Cloudflare or you have used it, right? Because just they support the NPM ecosystem. So like that's one thing. But that being said, getting into kind of like workers and durable objects and pages and all these things, like, can we maybe start to break some of this stuff down? So like, what are Cloudflare workers? And also like, from my understanding, durable objects are a somewhat adjacent thing, but that folks are often confused about like what, you know? Yeah, it's all in the same ecosystem for sure. So like Cloudflare workers were the initial building block. So there are serverless platform just you can think about it like an app, like that's your request response. That's like what it is, right? So you handle requests coming in, you can do all sorts of stuff. Like you can add headers, you can, you can interact with other Cloudflare APIs, like bot detection, like all sorts of stuff like that. You can take advantage of all these APIs, you can run your business logic, and then you return a response. So they were like our initial thing. And then pretty much right away, there was all this need for like state, right? People are like, oh, I just need some place to have some state, like if I'm doing like a a comment system or a likes counter or like keeping track of, you know, anything, right? And so our initial state offering was KV, so a key value store that also runs in all of our data centers. And so it's real simple, like if you've ever used like MongoDB or like a lot of companies have their own key value stores, but you could put like, keeping track of like a how many times a user has visited the site, you could have the key be their IP address and the value be, you know, zero going up, whatever, stuff like that. And so KV is really awesome. And in fact, like I'll get into pages in a minute, but our original kind of concept of static site host was this thing called workers sites, which we still support. And it basically, it's like a build tool that takes like a static website, markdown files and sticks each markdown file in a KV store, right? So the key is the path, like my first blog post. And then the value is a bunch of like HTML or markdown. And then a worker that reads the path from the request, fetches it from the KV store and returns it, right? It's like a basic kind of static site, even though it's dynamic technically. 
So KB is awesome. It's like, it's just incredible. The only problem with KB is that it's an eventually consistent system, right? So if you imagine having this KB store running on all like two or 300 data centers, it takes some time to populate, right? And so you can get into some, for the blog example, it's great because it's like, okay, I updated my blog and it takes you 20 seconds before you can actually see it. That's not a problem, right? But when you start doing like really performance-based state, it's a problem. And so durable objects is like the counterpart, right? So durable objects would be not eventually consistent. Durable objects is a single instance of this state. And so like if you were doing something like real-time comments or a voting system or a chat room or a Google Doc, you know, something where that's really important, then durable objects is the use case that you would want to use there. And so we have two options for state. One of them is really, really fast, but eventually consistent. And then if you need things to be strongly consistent, then durable objects are the right choice. So yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that that definitely makes sense. Thank you for that great explanation. So I guess maybe kind of taking it from the top, like just to drive this message home, you know, workers still supported were the original thing. I'm sure like there's a lot of evolution in terms of even just debugging support and there's a dashboard and blah, blah, blah. Can you give some folks some context around like when you would even use a worker, especially in the context of a static site? Like it's a little confusing and counterintuitive, right? Like we're mixing a lot of concerns here. It's like, how is this different than like an application server somewhere else, right? Right. So the static site example might've been confusing. What I was trying to illustrate is let's say you have this desire to build something similar to Netlify, right? Where people upload their stuff and it turns it into this really cool thing with an application server that serves it. You could build your own Netlify using those pieces. That's all I was trying to say. Ah. So you could build your own Netlify using like a worker and a KV store of all the users' posts. And then you could get all those posts and kind of serve that static content. So I wasn't trying to say that workers are for static sites. I was saying if you wanted to build your own static site service, you could do something cool like that with a worker. But we also have an offering now called Cloudflare Pages, which simply is a static site host. It's another like dead simple, you connect your GitLab or your GitHub repo to it, it just does all the cool stuff. It puts everything on our CDN, it does all that stuff for you. But I was more trying to illustrate the like gravity of things you could build with workers, including some of these popular services that exist. No, thank you for clarifying. That's makes a lot more sense. (laughs) So a worker is about compute and a durable object is about basically persisting your JavaScript objects around the world for you. KV and durable objects are really just simple first state. Durable objects name is because the syntax for it is a JavaScript object. But at the end of the day, they really are like these key value stores for any kind of simple state. Sure. The KV is this eventually consistent system. The durable objects are really cool. It's like there's just a single instance of it. And it moves around data centers based on where the requests are coming from. So it tries to like make itself live next to where a lot of requests are happening right now. But it is strongly consistent, but it'll have higher latency than the KV, which is everywhere. I see. Yeah. Is there a time when someone would want to use KV, like a key value store versus a durable object? Like, Yeah. So, I mean, the debate is really truly it's consistency versus latency for those that are like trying to make their chart. Like if you don't care about eventual consistency, that, or if you, yeah, if you don't care about things taking a little while to update, then KV is a far superior platform because it's so low latency. It'll return super quickly. If you're making chat room, comments, Google Docs, something where you just can't have like a 20 second wait time in between updates, then Durable Objects is the way to go for that. Mm. And the drawback of Durable Objects is? Higher latencies, depending. I mean, so there's only one of them. There's one Durable, there's one piece of state so if you and I are like hitting it from California and then somebody hops on from Japan and requests it, there will be latency because it will actually have to go to California where that one durable object lives. So it's not replicated around the world. It is not replicated. It is like a singleton. It's ping-ponged. That is ping-ponged all over the place on our network. <laughs> I'm going to stick with KV myself, but I think it depends on the use case. Yeah, so I think KV is always the best starting place. And then as soon as you need something like real-time, like people are building cool, like I said, chat applications or right. live editing or anything like that, you would move it to a durable object. Very cool. I love the idea of having an arbitrary object and just saying, hold on to this for me. It's awesome. <laughs> right? For JavaScript developers, it is like super good. I love that syntax a lot. Mm-hmm. Have like the crypto folks discovered this yet? Are they like, how do we blockchain this? I know. <laughs> Durable objects on the blockchain. Yeah. It's really interesting because we, we offer gateways like for Ethereum. So you can you know hit one of our public gateways or whatever. But 
We haven't done a ton in the crypto space, the cryptocurrency space. We do a ton in the cryptography space. But Son of a gun. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I, I wonder if people start using us. People do use our gateways. So like stuff that lives in the blockchain, we have a cool gateway where you put the address at the end and it'll fetch it. But I wonder if Cloudflare will go Web3 in the next uh, couple of years. We'll see. Oh my God, that's amazing. All right, well, before we kind of move on to the next thing, I just want to circle on like workers again, just because again, this is there's so many possibilities. And for me, like it took me a long time, I think, to even just wrap my head around the Same. power and the possibilities, you know? So can you explain to folks, like, can you maybe give me a scenario of like, when is a worker useful? Absolutely. More useful than like a Lambda or an application server? Like what's the true kind of like value prop of a worker? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say like the value props would be the same with a single Lambda function, a worker, a Fastly function. Those are all the same. It's like a single serverless instance. But coming from like, let's say you have like a simple, like let's say, let's say you have like an Express.js app, like some node app with like 10 endpoints on it. And you're like, oh, why would I use like the equivalent would be 10 workers, right? Like one for each like request endpoint. So it's like, I think a few things, I think like one that's important is when you manage the whole application, you're gonna have to go through the whole renting a server, picking the operating system, stuff like that. Breaking it into these little 10 is kind of nice because then you just deploy them all via Cloudflare or AWS or whatever, and they just kind of live. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. And the other thing is like scalability. Like if you've ever hit like a, uh, your VPS and all of a sudden you're getting a ton of traffic because you're on Hacker News and it's like, we've hit the max request for the server and you're like on the phone trying to get another server. Like you don't have to worry about any of that. That's all automatic. But when it comes to like simple examples for a worker, like, cause I've done a lot of work at companies that have robust application server and they're just looking to like sprinkle some workers magic on top of it. So like one really common thing is adding a header. Like, let's say you have this big app that has like 600 endpoints and you want to add like a security header or like a really good example is like, we have this cool bot detector API that's a Cloudflare product. And what it does is uses all these great heuristics and it'll give you a number one to a hundred how much do we think that this request is coming from a bot? <laughs> and so you could just block things, right? You could be like, oh, it's an 80, I'm blocking. Or you could like have a simple worker that intercepts all of your requests from all hundred of your endpoints, grabs the bot store and just sticks it in a simple header. And now all the clients can do whatever they want with that scores individually. So like you can think of these areas where you're just kind of intercepting, doing a little something and passing it on. And it goes all the way from there for you could build your whole application on workers. But I think for people that already have big API surfaces, like thinking about things like that, like adding a simple security header to all of your endpoints, that's a great use case for a worker. Yeah, that's some hot stuff. I mean, it's a great proxy layer. And also we use it heavily at NPM. And yeah, I can say like blocking a specific IP, super easy on the Cloudflare dashboard. Absolutely. And, you know, just a really great use case for that stuff too. So thank you for explaining that. And we had one of our listeners actually message us and they had a bunch of like specific questions. So I don't know, Jared, do you want to? Yeah, shout out to Matt Minucci, who requested a show all about Cloudflare workers. And no specific questions, but a statement that I wanted to at least pull in. So they recently said, seeing the sophisticated coordination with respect to application state and serverless environments was extremely difficult, if not impossible due to the stateless nature of serverless function invocations. Then the workers team created durable objects. So Matt's a huge durable objects fan. I know I just said I'd pick KV, but here we have <laughs> a counterpoint perhaps. Globally unique instances of plain old JavaScript classes running in the edge cloud, each with their own access to a strongly consistent persistent storage API. I think Matt might be able to work for you guys, by the way. Yeah, I should have just brought Matt on here. That is killing it. That's great. Right? He says, these lightweight stateful objects permit sophisticated state to be handled on the edge in a serverless environment and unlock immensely cool possibilities like running an entire real-time chat app using a single durable object class definition. He linked out to one, which you guys have on GitHub. We'll also link to that workers chat demo on the Cloudflare org. And he says, I've loved exploring these technologies on my own as I feel very empowered by the potential and ease of use of the platform. And I think other developers might feel the same way. So there's a ringing endorsement from one of our listeners. I love it. And I do want to cover, I think we can talk about it a little later, but I want to cover like why I'm long on Cloudflare for, for like building like your next thing. Kind of like he's talking about, like I think that if you wanted to build like a SaaS application or something like that, I feel like we're starting to get to the point where it's like, it's so easy. And especially as a DA where I just get to like play with the stuff that they've built, like that these engine teams have built, like I'm shocked at how easy it is to like spin up. Like I did a blog post recently on like spinning up a whole video app where you can upload or stream video and you can gate 
access based on like all this stuff. And I'm like, it's like shopping. I'm like picking through Cloudflare services. I'm like, yep, take that, take that, take the stream API, take the CDN, take it. So I really think we're like heading towards this area where it's like, I hope to empower a lot of like big creativity with that stuff. Yeah, it's certainly a game changer. I'm like really excited about seeing the best practices kind of come out of this, right? Because I think there's so much new stuff that we've put out into the wild. And you know, web developers are like the smartest people ever, but they also like to like push things to the limit. And so I'm really curious, like if in a few months, we're going to see good a best practices guide from Cloudflare around like how to normalize your durable objects. Yeah. Like how big is too big, right? Like, you know, right. like just things like that. I'm curious to kind of see that shape over the coming year. Yeah, I think that's that's like a big part of my team's charter this year is like getting to know folks like we do some really cool interviews we do like sit downs with folks that are building on us we try to pair with like our customer success people as issues come in but i think that's like a big thing for my team is like trying to come up with best practices common issues ways to avoid them like kind of our thinking like our rationale for the way we're building things like i think a lot of that needs to now get like written down, highlighted, stuff like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And so R2, what is R2? I think R2-D2 when I see that, but like, (laughs) clearly that's not what it is. I think R2-D2 when I see it too. So yeah, like R2 is our our actual like storage, right? It's like coming after S3, basically. It's like Amazon has S3, we have R2. Get it, they subtracted one from each. (laughs) Yeah, did you just like, is R before S in the alphabet? Like (laughs) QRS, yeah, for sure. I think there's gotta be something there. Yeah. (laughs) And it's also like, it's, they call it like radically reprogrammable or something like that. Don't you want to make it better? Like you're less than Amazon, but don't you want to be like T4 if you're going to be better than S3? (laughs) Uh, maybe. R2 is like a less than. You're subtracted from what Amazon's doing. I think they're subtracting from the price. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't name it. Or build it. <laughs> well, R2 is is endearing. That's for sure. Yeah, it is. Less is also more. Less is more. Well, the price is less. I think that's the main thing that we want to talk about. <laughs> On one hand, it was like inevitable that we... That we have some kind of storage, right? Some place that you can stick like your media, videos, images, you know, stuff like that. But then on the same hand, we've been, like our CEO wrote a post about this, like we've been monitoring kind of like the Amazon's like financial structure for how they charge for this. And so Mm -hmm. this whole concept of like egress, where it's like you put up a video and then Amazon is like charging you every single time that that video is like consumed or watched, things like that. Even though, I mean, it's just sitting there, right? Like it's just sitting there. And so the whole idea with R2 that we think is really revolutionary is that we have zero egress fees where we're not... It's a totally different billing structure. Right. So you can think about it. It's just S3 with a totally different billing structure that ought to save you a large amount of money if you're somebody who puts a lot of content on Amazon S3 buckets. Well, if, for example, you wanted to host your own, like, you, yeah, you use video as an example. You know, one reason YouTube became what it is today is because the cost to stream video to all of these people is so prohibitively expensive for individuals, right? Yeah. The other reason is discovery and it became like a magnet. But just the price, I mean, you had to host on YouTube because if you're going to have a million people watch a 10 megabyte file, well, you can do the math on that. And it's just prohibitively expensive. But if egress, if outbound traffic is a zero and you can put it on R2, now you can self-host your own videos and you can use the old HTML video element. Absolutely. And put them right on your own website and not rely upon somebody like YouTube to host that content for you. I think that could be a game changer. Yeah, we're hoping so. And I think that it's still like, you know, it's one of those nice ways of disruption where we're like, wow, like people are making a huge amount of profit off this, but you speculate that you could still make an okay profit charging like 100x less than your competitor. Like I do think it's like an area that's like ripe for disruption right now in that sense where it's like, I still think that you can make good money by charging people to host their stuff with you without charging them like a million dollars because they they got popular one day and it's that same one video it's just getting watched by a lot of people and the bill is like astronomical so well that's just the beauty of competition in in markets like here comes cloudflare and they're just gonna undercut the crap out of it and we were talking about this on the changelog recently i think it's still like sign up for the wait list kind of a thing but the way you guys structure it even with the ability to just slurp in your current s3 setup yeah it's like is there a downside for a developer? It's kind of like I'm paying money and then I go to zero on this bill. Right. Obviously, you just have to pay for like what you upload and probably like a total stored amount. But the outbound is such a huge part. It's like, who isn't going to switch? And what's that going to do? It's going to make Amazon better. Like they're going to have to react at some point. They have to respond. Yeah, totally. And so that's just better for everybody, this competition. 
Yeah, I really hope so. And I think that it's just, yeah, like um, the billing cycle just doesn't make sense now the way it is. So I think that, yeah, I think this will be really cool for a lot of folks. I assume Amazon will also introduce massive discounts into that stuff as well. So I do think it's cool for me as like a, a user, like advocating for the users, like again, to what you said, like, oh, I'm like, let me revisit, like, can I host my own podcast? Can I host my own video series? Could I have an internal video thing for work that I built? You know what I mean? Like a lot of new creative ideas are opening up, which has me really excited about it. For me, it's like a huge empowerment to content creators. So John Cupertino, what I'd like to say to you is... People are going to actually think that's his name by the end of the show. I know, I know. They're going to be like, oh, John, I can't find this John Cupertino. Does he work for Apple? I can't remember. Like, yo, um, keep Googling, but nothing turns up. Zoo, host of Ship It, a show with weekly episodes about getting your best ideas into the world and seeing what happens. We talk about code, ops, infrastructure, and the people that make it happen, like charity majors from Honeycomb. We act like great engineers make great teams, and it's exactly the opposite, in fact. It is great teams that make great engineers. And they Farley, one of the founders of Continuous Delivery. Start off assuming that we're wrong rather than assuming that we're right test our ideas, try and falsify our ideas. Those are better ways of doing work. And it doesn't really matter what work it is that you're doing. That stuff just works better. We even experiment on our own open source podcasting platform so that you can see how we implement specific tools and services within changelog.com, what works and what fails. It's like there's a brand new hammer and we grab hold of it and everyone gathers around. We put our hand out and we <laughs> we strike it right on our thumb. And then everybody knows that hammer really hurts when you strike it on your thumb. I'm glad those guys did it. I've learned something instead. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting perspective, but I, I don't see that way. OK, it's an amazing analogy, but I'm not sure that applies here. Listen to an episode that seems interesting or helpful. And if you like it, subscribe today. We'd love to have you with us. So John Cooper, okay, John Cooperman, my request to you is, Just call him John. as somebody who deeply cares about the web, right? Let's now make R2 interfaces easy and accessible for non-technical people so that they can then roll that into their Wix site yeah. or whatever, their WordPress site. Like, let's like educate non-technical content creators about like the power of owning their own content and also being able to serve it in a way that like gives them maximal control and like not having to worry about ads and or like what's my user going to click into next, you know, yeah. if you're really trying to control the messaging of your content, like yeah. think R2, you know, that's my poke. No, I think that's fantastic. And I think like two things for the dev advocacy team are like one, always trying to like build libraries. This is still for technical people, but to make interfacing with our stuff easier, like that's always top of mind. But then two, yeah, like really trying to get the messaging out, trying to sit down with folks, trying to like be active. Like we're on Twitter. Like if you're like, we've been seeing a lot of people building SaaS apps on top of Cloudflare. Mm -hmm. And I think that for the next year, that's going to be like a big place where we spend energy is like reaching out being like, this sounds awesome. Can we chat? Can we sit down? Can we help? Is there, you know, is there feedback you have? Stuff like that. So yeah, I, I totally love that though. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and so just so really quickly, I guess, Perf, we've talked about how, Cloudflare CDN caches have certainly helped speed the build times of your NPM install, yard install, <laughs> you know, but that being said, like there's so much more, and especially like, it seems like a huge shift for Cloudflare has been actually around, like, how do we make things go faster yeah. on the web for all different types of assets? So can you, can you walk us through some of those features? Yeah, I'd say just the big things like to check out if you start a new pages app or if you move your site onto Cloudflare, like just playing around in the dashboard, which we've been working on design tweaks too. But like we basically have a lot of cool stuff about automatic image optimization, making your images smaller or reading the device size and serving images. So that's like polish and mirage. And then we have like really cool, like we have the rocket loader, which will like turn off unnecessarily JavaScript, let the HTML load and then put the JavaScript back to on. So you've got like a lot of these options and these are all like, one-click options for the most part. So if you start a new Cloudflare Pages app, or if you you know move your website over, like start looking at these things. So like yeah, automatic image resizing, 
automatic compression of JavaScript and CSS and HTML, serving images by the device width, or with the automatic resizing, every time we have to do a resize, we save it too. That's like a paid service. And so then you just upload one image and then as devices come in, we start resizing it based on their width and we save all those cached in the edge. And so you end up with like 10 or 20, you know, copies of your image, rocket loader for like speeding up JavaScript heavy sites. And then the other one that I wanted to talk about, which I think is really cool is we have this tiered caching initiative, which is now available in the dashboard. And so like the idea being, let's say you have 200 data centers and use our CDN, or we have 200 data centers, you use our CDN. And so like your stuff gets cached to all 200 data centers, but then every time you do like a cache purge or a user requests something where there's a miss, it has to always go back to your application, right? So like a hypothetical, I guess, would be like you have an app, you go buy like a, a DigitalOcean VPS, right? And you put it in New York City and you put your app on there and it gets overwhelmed. So then you sign up for Cloudflare CDN and poof, like all of a sudden there's all this caching stuff. But you can still have this problem where like if somebody's hammering on an endpoint or just users are trying to request an endpoint and it's a miss for the cache, that the, all the caches will start going back to your one DigitalOcean VPS that you bought, right? And it's like almost like a little mini DDoS, like an innocent one, an accidental one. But you see this, like Facebook went down the other day. So all of these big sites like Twitter, Facebook, Google, like they take in more traffic than they could possibly serve cold. Like if all the computers went off and all went back on again, they just get hammered. And so they rely on these caching mechanisms. So one of the problems for these companies when they have an outage and things go actually down, you'll see this all the time where they keep trying to go back up and it's like up and then down again. And then it's like they go up and then they go down. So they have to come up with these like clever ways of like, okay, like we'll go up, but we'll block any users whose names don't start with A or, you know, they'll, they'll come up with these like ways of doing these like mm. slowly booting back on so they don't get just decimated again. So the same thing can happen with just anybody's application where you have like this one BPS, it can handle like whatever, a hundred or a thousand hits a second. And then something gets purged from the cache and all of your users are trying to hit it. Boom, it takes it down again. So we came up with this idea with the tiered cache where we take those 200 and we mark like, let's say 25 of them as like top level cash CDNs, like cut top level endpoints. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is now the other 175 are no longer allowed to hit origin when they have a cash miss. What they have to do is they have to find their closest top level cash system and ask it for the file. And so it's like, I need a JPEG and I hit this one, I'm in Florida. So I hit the Miami one. Miami doesn't have it. Miami is no longer allowed to just hit New York. I need, I need, I need, it can't do that anymore. Has to find its closest one, let's say like in South Carolina and be like, do you have the JPEG? And only if that doesn't have the JPEG, South Carolina has permission to hit New York now. It just sounds like the way DNS works. Yes, but there's advantages where it can do a lot of things that DNS can't, like it can monitor like slowdowns or different routes or different like paths towards host that like, this is where I feel like we kind of have built this like I don't want to be like too tooting our own horn about it, but it's kind of cool. Like the internet has some, like the way that networking works has a few of these shortcomings, like traffic jams are a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Where like a certain popular data center will be slowed down. So we have some cool things with the fact that we're sitting on top of that. So we can basically have these caching systems that can like reroute based on like yeah. real time, you know, analytics and stuff like that and prevent you from hammering origin server. So I really like that stuff. Is that because you guys, you own every hop? So whereas in DNS, you're going outside your own networks, but in this system, you control each hop. And so you can route around certain things, whereas you wouldn't have that information inside of a DNS right. architecture. Yep, absolutely. And so we have some cool stuff. Like I think it's like Argo Smart Routing is that product. If you search Argo Smart Routing, go to the site. It has some really cool, like our design team did these awesome like visualizations of like, you know, let's say there's like something going down in this like really big data center in the middle of the country and how Argo Smart Routing can like move around it and get back to origin in a faster way, not just optimizing for a least number of hops. For me, it's like Google Maps versus Waze, almost like at least old Google Maps before they acquired Waze, but yeah. still not integrated, right? Like Waze is like using a lot of smart crowdsourcing data to actually like help you find the true fastest route, not just like based on the same like two dimensions that 
we've been using for years, right? So it's very interesting. Right, distance and the speed limit is the exactly. simplified one, but this has actually like traffic jams and an accident and a closed yeah. road. Yeah, you know, police person, you know, or whatever else. So it's just very, very cool, John. Honestly, my jaw is on the floor. Um, I'm very impressed at this, and I think what's for me very cool is like to see, I don't know, like engineering and cloud architecture focus heavily on resilience, you know? And for me, like, it just feels like the North Star maybe within the engineering org at Cloudflare is like clearly like resilience because it's very clear just even in the products that it's about resilience, but also don't do more than you have to, right? So it's like, when you mentioned like the image um, resizing optimizations, like images only get resized when an actual request comes in from a new device that re like requires this new size, like it's so much better than just creating a bunch of JavaScript or like bit trash, you know, because right, right like I'm going to create one image and I'm going to have like 50 versions of it hosted on some static site and like maybe like only three versions are ever actually used. Yeah. And so I've just like created garbage on the internet and potentially I'm also paying for garbage on the internet that I'm not using, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, I think like one of the things, and again, like, I don't know that it's luck or like that it's like this incredible vision from like leadership or whatever, but I feel like when well, I remember I was like talking before about like you make these architectural decisions and they have like serious implications down the road. Like mm. I think that Cloudflare picking DNS as the abstraction point where we're not making like build tools and we're not making like in between services that do all this stuff. Like the abstraction point is you add, you put Cloudflare in front of your site's DNS, right? That's how you use Cloudflare. But being in that position versus some of these other positions of other companies, like I think has paid extreme dividends where we're able to like analyze traffic, make really interesting tools, just like do all of these things that I think that we're just very lucky to be in the opportunity to do. But I don't know that it was even lucky. Honestly, like our leadership folks are like, yeah. like Matthew and Michelle are like awesome to listen to. So I, I don't want to take credit away from them. But to me, it feels like, oh, we really lucked out. Like this is like a really great abstraction point to pick. So I think that it's just been a very nice time to be like sitting in this like in between and offering all these creative services. So luck for me is opportunity meets preparation, right? So I can tell you like Cloudflare has been pushing the boundaries for a very, very long time. And I'll share a story with everyone as to like my first interaction with Cloudflare was maybe about like, I don't know, five, six years ago. I knew about the company before that, but like I was at all things open and connected with someone who worked at a company that was just acquired by Cloudflare. And like I got invited to like a workshop that he was giving for a few people to like demo his app. It was some like drag and drop edge compute thing. I can't even remember the name. But anyways, I attended this workshop and I learned about like edge computing for the first time. And they had developer advocates from Cloudflare there. And I was just like, whoa, what is all this stuff? Like it just, right? Like it just felt like they were talking to me about the iPhone when I still had like a rotary phone. You know what I mean? Like it felt very future focused. Like, so I think the company itself seems to be has been very like oriented towards the future, like for a very, very long time. So yeah, it's not luck. <laughs> so. No, I don't think so. I think it's interesting being new and being on more of a customer focused team where like, yeah, I feel like other jobs I've had, like leadership gets on stage and like kind of drills into you. Like, this is our mantra. This is our thinking. This is where we're heading. This is where we're, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like they get on yeah. these all hands and like Cloudflare has this like very unique thing where they don't do a lot of like that kind of talking, like stuff just kind of comes together. And I feel like one of the cool results is that employees have these like micro epiphanies as they're working where it's like another ball drops and you're like, oh, like that's what you've been. I, oh, okay, 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 I get it. Like as this like SaaS stuff for me is like, as we've done like the stream stuff and we've done like, I just starts coming together. Like I feel like it's so much cooler like being shown than it is being told. I think that's like one thing I really enjoy about working there is like the releases are happening and stuff like, you know, wheels are turning in my head and like stuff's clicking together. And I'm like, oh, I'm starting to like really see this kind of like this vision here, which is, is just exciting. These worlds are also often so disconnected, right? I mean, you have cloud engineers that are traditionally kind of focused on your monolith applications and VMs and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of that brain power in cloud engineering is like kind of has been traditionally focused on supporting that. And of course, you, you we see we see an AWS Lambda come out and the adoption of that. Yeah. You know, the serverless revolution is here to stay, right? 
But again, like it's nice to see these worlds bridge a little bit because, you know, web developers are now with isomorphic JavaScript, you know, with universal JavaScript and with just like workers and right, like us being able to do so much more with JavaScript in the cloud. Like it's just very exciting to see like these two worlds come together. And I think for me, like Cloudflare is like the bedrock of that, like those two worlds. So very, very exciting stuff. So real quick, we got to, we got to talk about security. So you kind of hinted at this earlier. There's this big button on the cloud for a website. I just, <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to be there. Is it turbo? No, it's like under attack question mark, literally on the homepage on the top right. I'm like, wow. <laughs> okay. So clearly there's a lot of good security features here, but I love that you're marketing to folks that are just like sick of being DDoSed or whatever. Like, can you tell us like how, yeah. what's the story here with resilience and security? No, I love that. And I do think that was like a big part of how we came into market share was like, was D I think DDoS really made Cloudflare like a lot of what it is today. Like they were just DDoS, I mean like anonymous stuff going on, like a lot of these DDoSes and like Cloudflare kind of came out with these really great solutions that are still great. So the under attack button's awesome. Like the biggest thing that it does is it, it puts our like JS free kind of captcha thing, right? Like, I don't know if you've seen that, like I play a lot of chess and whenever you go to log into chess.com, it first takes you to this little screen that's like verifying and it runs its own heuristics to be like, oh, is this a bot? Is it a spammer? Do we feel confident it's a real human? So it kind of like puts this thing in front of you. So you would see if you were getting DDoS and you were seeing this like incredible rise in traffic or whatever, you could kind of stick that thing on. People will start hitting Cloudflare first before they hit you. The heuristics run. They can really protect you from a lot of that stuff which is awesome, like, which is just really, really nice. I feel like it's really empathetic, too, to be like, all right, what is in people's head right now? They, you know, they just got an email saying, like, unusual traffic. They go and they're like, 1,000 hits a second site is getting, like, 200 million hits or, you know, whatever. Like, having, I think, a nice button to just, like, cool it is awesome. <laughs> cool it. But so cool down. we do a lot of really cool stuff, like, from product offerings. So we have, like, the CAPTCHA, which is really nice. So it's not one that you have to, like um, – that you necessarily have to play with. It just runs its automated heuristics, right? It pops you up to a Cloudflare screen, says, give me a second, and then pops you back. We have a lot of different protections over like bots and things like that and spam. So you can set up your own kind of heuristics, be like, oh, if it's more than a 70, just block it. Or if it's an IP address that's hit more than... So it kind of comes into this again, like we try to offer these building blocks where you can create your own experience. So we have the bot detector score. We have Cloudflare page rules, which are like an if-else... UI that you can use. So you could say like, if a user hits this URL, add a header. But you could also say, if a user's bot management score is over 80, send them away. You know, I don't want it. So we kind of offer this like whole package. And then again, being in the DNS spot, a lot of the cool stuff is really just behind the scenes. It's just like mm -hmm. stuff where when that page is sitting, we're running like latest and greatest kind of like cool security heuristics and stuff like that behind the scenes. So I think it's really, really great for the security side just being behind Cloudflare, having access to those tools. And a lot of them are just one click installs, really easy for people to use. That's cool. I feel like I need a cool down button for my life. So <laughs> that would be nice. How can I copy pasta that? Yeah. And yeah, like, I don't know, like, I mean, that's just phenomenal. And it's also for me, like a little bit like it feels a little duh. Like I'm like, how are other cloud providers not doing this? Like it just feels like this is the way we should be handling these things. So I hope more folks follow Q um, and imitation is the greatest form of flattery in this case, just because obviously like it's better for the web as a whole, right? Like if we, we all have better, better ways to handle these situations. So we can't end this show without talking about Rust. <laughs> JS party. So we got to ask about Rust. JS party. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I'm having like these moments with Rust where I'm like, I'm still in the phase where I'm like questioning, like, do we really need this in the JavaScript like ecosystem? And I'm sure I'm going to be wrong on this because lots of people who are smarter than me have hopped on that bandwagon. I'm just like skeptical about getting in the car, you know? Yeah. So... I think that's a great topic that I have a lot of thoughts about, like all these tools being JavaScript tools being rewritten in Rust. So I think like the you know Rome team, Parcel, ES Build is Go, but there's like a lot of these tooling, right, is moving over to Rust support. It's it's big. Mm -hmm. I like Rust the language a lot. I feel like that'd be a fa fascinating topic. Like does the JavaScript ecosystem need to move everything over into Rust? I think it'd be a good topic, but... For us, I think it started as just like a benefit of using V8. And so we had a WASM story and Rust has a great WASM story. Mm -hmm. And then a while ago, we just started offering like pure native, like full on Rust support for our workers, which is really exciting. But again, I think what's so cool about JavaScript and Rust is it takes like groups of folks who have normally been a little bit kept out of this like API development scene, right? Like I think which has lent itself to like 
I don't know, yeah, like Java, Ruby, Go, you know, these big players or whatever. And like mm-hmm. having some of this native support for front end devs with JavaScript and system devs with Rust is like, it's pretty awesome, I think, for people to be able to build their own their own platforms, their own tooling. So we have a lot of Rust folks. Our CLI is written in Rust. We have native Rust support. We have Rust types, like an up-to-date maintained types package. So back to your thing about which APIs do we support and don't we support, we have a TypeScript and a Rust package, which I would really recommend if you're writing workers because they will fully autofill in with all the APIs that we do support. So if you wanted to check like file system APIs or set timeout or things like that, I would really recommend the types package for that. But yeah, I think our Rust story is pretty cool. I hope to see a lot more like, I just, I get a huge kick out of like the, watching the stuff people are building with it. So I think that's been really exciting. For me, I'm like, I just, I don't understand why folks choose Rust to build web application software. Like I understand build tooling, but like Rust and workers for me personally is like still like a question mark, but to each their own, right? Like this is why people are different. And like, I think there are people are allowed to use tools the way they want to. Yeah. Not everybody has to think like me, right? (laughs) So So, yeah, I still think there's a large amount of stuff that depending on the task, like very performance specific tasks are nice to be done in WASM. Um, So I still think the Rust WASM story is an important one where if you're doing like a worker that does like image processing or, you know, something like that, that story there is going to be better. But as far as like a hello world or a request response or whatever, I'm not sure that. Right. I think it's just good for us to support as many languages as possible. But I do think there's something to like people building like extreme performance stuff that might be that might be a little bit slower even on our fast network if it was done in javascript but i'm very interested too i'm very like kind of watching i haven't done a lot of rust so i'm very interested to see how how that progresses well y'all are definitely up to really cool stuff i love a lot of cloudflare's offerings this feels a lot like a a job interview where the the person asks you like what are your greatest strengths and we've been talking about a lot of cool stuff and then they ask what are your greatest weaknesses and you can't say things like well Sometimes I work too hard or I'm almost too humble. I care too much. Yeah, I care too much. So surely it's not all rainbows and unicorns. There has to be things that are missing, things that are not as good or like, is it really expensive? Is there a catch? Tell us some of the things that where Cloudflare is like, provide some balance on this conversation for us. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think that there's things for sure about like the company at its size and growth right now. Like we are going through this extreme growth phase Things can get bumpy, you know, th- like things can get missed or overlooked. I think I feel this a lot as a DA where like I just I missed something like I forgot to even write a guide for something or I published something and people get freaked out. I think we have not ironed out a lot of our processes. Yeah, I think that's like definitely one thing around like we could do launches smoother. We could communicate better and not just like on pipe dream. I mean, like, I don't think we're doing a good enough job, like not saying, oh, we could communicate better because that feels a little bit like a softball. But I mean, like there are times that I think small teams growing really quickly, maybe not in the best conversations with each other. We step on toes or we launch a thing that impacts another thing and we didn't think about it. I think we have not ironed our process out as much as like, you know, a bit on Amazon, a Microsoft, something like that. I also think that we're, we're experimental, which is really cool, but I think there are drawbacks to that. I think that, that some users will probably feel more comfortable with companies that do slow and steady launches of things that are all going to be long-term supported, all going to be fully fleshed out and documented, all going to be, we're still like a little bit firing like a startup. And I think that culturally that can be tough for some users. Like I think users are like, wait a minute, you just, you said you're going to do this and now you're doing, you know what I mean? I think we're still trying to like kind of get our footing with those things. So I think a lot of it comes down to like, we're at a peculiar stage company wise. And those have like these effects. I think sometimes that can make things like confusing or stressful or just not as smooth as other companies do. Mm-hmm. Good answer. Good answer. What about R2? When can we get our hands on R2? <laughs> when are we doing that? I don't, I wish I knew. It's like funny because some of the launches I'm like very heavily involved in, like we just did our pages with functions. So like workers and pages living together. I was like, there in the room i'm like hey let's get going let's r2 have a little less visibility into i'm really excited about it everything i've seen from it and used with it is really cool i don't know when it's gonna ga yet hopefully soon because it's awesome but i don't know sorry (laughs) fair enough i'm excited about r2 if you can't tell yeah me too yeah that's very cool and yeah jared i i thought my um me being like a poo-poo about uh, Rust was like enough to balance the show, but like clearly not. <laughs> so it's okay. I, you know, Rust is awesome for like high compute jobs, right? Like it's obviously, I think for me, it's like... I'm a fan of garbage collection. I'm not sure about you, but I like uh, languages that... <laughs> yeah. I'm with you, Mel. Like just go ahead and handle that stuff for me. I like... Uh, oh, yeah. 
I don't know. So <laughs> yeah, we've covered so much ground in so little time. So thank you for a talking really fast and like also somehow <laughs> managing to like explain things really easily. So thank you. You're like awesome at your job and you're hired. Yes, you're hired. You've been hired. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, this is the end of an interview, right? The higher author, the rejection. Yeah, you passed the test. All right. Thank you all for having me on. This is like very fun, very big fan. And uh, it was, yeah, it was really nice just kind of chatting about stuff and getting into the weeds of it all. So, yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to see where Cloudflare is in five years because I do think like they are the ones doing the most exciting innovation in terms of like cloud compute that supports like JavaScript heavy applications. So very, very excited. And I guess where can folks find you on the internet? And I guess you have also have a newsletter, right? I do. Yeah, I have a Twitter newsletter. They're pretty cool. But so yeah, I'm most active on Twitter. So I'm JKUP because it's not Cupertino. It is Cooperman is my last name. Sorry, Cooperman. And then also, yeah, johncooperman.com. Put a lot of stuff I blog and kind of do stuff like that. You have a great blog. Oh, thank you. And then check out JSConf Hawaii when, when we start doing conferences again. Uh, I'd love to see people there. So yeah, those are my places. We should partner up. Yes. Get JS Party back in Hawaii. Yeah. And I was going to say, I love your news, your Twitter newsletter. It's great. Like, I don't have to read Twitter because you do. And thank you for that. Yeah, I figured I'd put my Twitter obsession to good use there and do a little <laughs> round, round up every week of the many, <laughs> too many tweets that I read. So yeah. All right, everyone. So we'll see you all next week. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or thoughts that you want fielded by John, Amel, or myself, let us know in the comments. Pop open your show notes, click the Discuss on Changelog News link, and holler at us. We read every one. This is also a good time to subscribe if you're new, or send the pod to a friend who might enjoy it. We'd appreciate that. JS Party is produced by me, Jared Santo, with Breakmaster Cylinder on Beats. We are brought to you by Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next up on the pod, Faraz, Boneskull, and Amel are joined by Toby Langle for a thoughtful discussion in the wake of the recent FakerJS incident. Stay tuned for that. It's a good one, and we'll have it ready for you next week. Next week.